sermon text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Hear now God's holy word. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even as some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this manner in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good, and are not afraid with any terror. Thus far the reading of God's word, let us give thanks. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for your spirit who always accompanies your word. We pray grateful that he would guide, pray that he would guide and direct us, give us wisdom as we listen, help us to hear the things we need to hear. Help me to say the things that need to be said. Where we need rebuking, Lord, give us that. Help us to receive it graciously and kindly as a gift from your hand. Where we need encouragement, help us to hear that as well. We pray all this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Amen. I have a friend of mine who just went to law school. He's older, older. He's in his 30s, old, older for going to law school. He likes bouncing around, doing different things. And he's lost his thing now, so he's enjoying it. He actually, he's graduated now. But he was saying when he went to school, what struck him about being in law school was how many of the people training to be lawyers were activists. That's why they were there. They were activists. They were not interested in law. They're not interested in truth. They're not interested in justice. They were interested in changing things, social, changing social norms, getting rid of injustice and in sort of a, a squirmy kind of postmodern way where there is no line they were getting, aiming to get rid of injustice. And also what struck him about this is how many of them were women? How many of them were female? And how many women there were who were all interested in getting rid of injustice, who were in the law court, a law, um, trying to get a degree in law so they might change the world. They might do all this activist Stuff And this is what the world tells women consistently, regularly, tells them, this is how you change the world. This is what you're going to do. We need you to become a lawyer. We need you to become a politician. How many women's hopes were crushed in 2016? How many? When everybody was hoping that Clinton would win, and she did. There would be our chance for a woman to change the world. This is what the world pushes. This is what society pushes. This is the way you change things as a female, breaking down these barriers. My son just got a book on football. Son, eight years old. Okay, so this is not like, you know, some older kid's book. An eight-year-old got a book on football. I'm like, sure, it sounds great. Let's bring it home. Bring it home. We're reading it. There's a girl. There's a girl on the football team. There's a female on the football team. And I'm just like, okay, no, we're not going to read that, okay? But this is how you change the world, by breaking these norms, by breaking through these barriers, the patriarchal oppression. And yes, I say that in sort of a mocking fashion, the patriarchal oppression. But the Bible has a very different view of how women change things. And the society is not like it. In fact, a lot of Christian women don't even like it, to be honest. But it is what the scriptures teach. The scriptures say to women, if you want to change things, there's a particular path you are supposed to take, a particular route you are supposed to take. Okay? And it is not being a CEO. It is not being a lawyer. It is not being a politician. It's not playing in a football game with a bunch of guys. Okay? This is not how you change things. Okay? So Peter lays out for us here in chapter 3 of 1 Peter how women change things, okay? how they move things along. And you should want to change them. Okay? There's nothing wrong with that. The desire to change society is not a bad thing. 
we should we want to do that. But the question often is our methods. Our methods are often flip-flopped. We get God's methods and we jettison God's methods and hold on to the world's methods, okay? So Peter here is continuing his exhortation to Christians who are in a position of weakness, in a position of weakness. So he started with government and Christians who were citizens in the government. Then he moved on to masters and slaves, and now he's moving on to husbands and wives. The wife is in a position of weakness, and here the weakness is doubled because not only is she weaker in a sense, according to the man, but she's in a non-Christian marriage. She's not married to a Christian man. Peter says this, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word. Okay, so, and obey the word, if you go back to chapter uh, 2 of 1 Peter, clearly means he's a Christian. If he was obeying the word, he's a Christian. He does not obey the word, so he's not a Christian. And this, along with Ephesians, are two of the strongest, most thorough passages on the role of a wife in the Christian life. 1 Peter 3 is stronger, okay, for a couple of reasons. One, it it has a lot more terminology, and we'll get to that at the end of the passage. But more than that, he's talking to women who are married to non-Christian men, okay? and we'll if, if a woman's married to a non-Christian man, he's saying this to a woman who's married to a non-Christian man. How much more is he going to say that to Christian women? And we'll address that at the end as well. So he's telling women, wives, in hard marriages or in marriages to non-Christian men, here is your tactic. Here is your strategy. Here's how you move things forward. Okay, this is how it works. All right. Now, let's start with a basic principle of biblical exegesis here. Basic principle of biblical interpretation. When the Holy Spirit gives a command to a specific group of people, you can assume that specific group of people has a temptation to that particular sin. Okay? So when Paul tells Timothy, flee from youthful lust, we can assume that young men have certain lusts they are tempted to. Okay? When Paul tells ministers, do not get wrapped up in useless wranglings or stupid quarrels, you can assume that ministers are tempted to get wrapped up in useless wranglings and stupid quarrels. Okay? And all you got to do is spend five minutes on the internet, and you can find some minister out there who's happy to fight with you over something. Okay? It is a temptation. When Paul tells young widows to marry and not be busybodies, you can assume that young unmarried women have a temptation to be busybodies. All right? So we can see, you got, I think you can see where it's all going, right? It's all going this. Three times in the New Testament, wives are exhorted to submit to their husbands. Three times. If the Holy Spirit said three times, this is what you're supposed to do, then you can assume, ladies, that this is a particular temptation of yours. Okay? And we all know this. When Paul tells husbands, love your wives, husbands are like, yeah, yeah, well, I'm, I'm probably not doing a good job with that. But you tell, <laughs> you tell a wife, well, maybe you're not spending your husband. It tends to be like, eh, cats. Okay. So anyway, um, my point here is that when Peter says this to wives, he is addressing a particular temptation you have. Okay, it's not something out there. It's not something for other ladies. It's a particular temptation you have. All right, And so take it seriously. God loves you. See in a minute, he's not saying this because he's mean, because he hates people. He's saying this because he loves you and he wants your marriage to be good. And here is how it can be good. That's what he's saying. Okay? So wives can refuse to submit in two ways. All right? The most obvious way is the brash, loud-mouthed, harsh, cruel woman, okay? I remember when I was a cashier at the grocery store around Thanksgiving, an older couple came through, maybe in their 50s or 60s, and the woman is just yelling at her husband and the cashier in the line as they're going through the line, calling him stupid repeatedly, calling him stupid because she sent him back to get something off the shelf and he got the wrong thing. 
You got the wrong thing. So she's be right all the way out the door. I mean, we listened to all the way out the door. She's just yelling, not, not pitch like screaming, but calling him names. And the customer behind her was just, we were all just thoroughly mortified, embarrassed for the guy. And the guy's just like, you know, kind of like that, obviously dejected. So there's that kind of not submissive woman. That woman obviously was, was running the show and had no intention of ever submitting to her husband. But in Christian circles, a, a far more common way is for wives to pretend submission publicly, but privately be manipulative, privately be controlling, behind the scenes, because they know what the scriptures teach. I mean, Christian women, they know what the scriptures teach. They're supposed to be submissive. So they give this front of submission to the people around them. So everyone, oh yeah, she's a very submissive wife. And they might even, she might even talk about her respect for her husband and how much she respects her husband. Okay, she might talk about that publicly. But when that door closes and they go into the house, Everybody knows who runs the show. The husband knows what's going to happen if he tell her, tells her no. The husband knows that she's going to be sullen or she's going to whine or she's going to get upset. The husband knows that. They, often these women lead the household. They lead them doctrinally. I've seen lots of men pushed around by their wives doctrinally. Okay? So Peter's saying here, you need to submit to your husbands. You need to obey your husbands. You need to follow your husbands. He uses very strong language as we move throughout the passage. And this submission is not supposed to be pretend. You're not supposed to be just out here for everybody else to see so everybody thinks you're submissive. And it's supposed to be actual submission to your husband, okay? actual submission. Peter goes on to say that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. A wife in a difficult marriage is tempted to nag. That's what Peter's saying here. You're tempted to talk a lot, okay? She wants to move her husband along. She wants to get him somewhere. And especially if he's not a Christian, she might have some spiritual justification. She might be like, yeah, I want you to become a Christian. I want you to come to church with me. She might be pushing. Peter's saying, I mean, he's not saying don't ever talk when he says without a word. He's saying don't nag. Don't nag your husband. Don't cajole him, okay? Don't give him suggestions, okay? You know, those suggestions from our wives, they're not really suggestions at all. They're more like commands. Don't do that, Peter is saying, okay? This is not how it works. And the reason for this is pretty simple. Husbands, men, don't like being pushed around by women. It's not effective, is Peter's point. It doesn't work. Men don't like to be nagged. They don't like to be pushed. They don't like to be shoved all right, around. And so Peter's saying, you're going to be tempted, ladies, if you're in a difficult marriage or if you're in a marriage to a non-Christian man, to talk them into things. Don't do that. This is not the way it's supposed to work, okay? When these pagan husbands, not with your nagging, but with encouragement, support, respect, honor, cheerful submission to the goals your husband is aiming for. A woman who is behind her husband verbally and in daily life supports his work, thanking him and praising him, will find that her marriage improves dramatically. No marriage has improved by you nagging. Your marriage is never gonna get better by you nagging your husband. I can promise you, it's not gonna happen. God knows the way for your marriage to thrive. God knows the way for your marriage to flourish. And he knows for, for, for wives to flourish, husbands need to love them and live with them in an understanding way. And for husband to, husbands to flourish, wives need to respect them and honor them and not nag them, okay? So Peter is encouraging wives here. He's saying you're gonna be tempted if you're in a hard marriage or a marriage to a non-Christian man to use your speech to move him along. Don't do that. And this is also, by the way, a good exhortation to mothers, especially of teenage sons. It's very tempting for moms to nag their sons. Just men don't like to be nagged. I mean, I don't know. It's just the way God made us. We don't like to be nagged. Now, we'll talk about the fact 
that men, at the end, I'll talk to men and encourage you, don't be the type of husband that needs to be nagged. Um, that's a thing too. But Peter understands the dynamics here between men and women. He understands a husband, and I think you can translate this to older young men as well, don't like being nagged. They don't like being pushed by your words. So how do, how does a woman in a difficult marriage or marriage to a non-Christian man, how does she change things? How does she move it along? Well, Peter tells us, he says, by your chaste conduct, by your righteous behavior. Okay, and the word chaste there just means pure. It's used of uh, the wisdom that's pure in James chapter 3. It's used of a virgin in 2 Corinthians. It's used of... Um, the other reference I had there. I can't remember that reference. There's one more there. Uh, but it's used to, it's, it means pure or holy or righteous. So this chaste conduct. So you're not going to win. You're not going to make your marriage better. You're not going to win him over by nagging. You're going to win him over by obedience to the Lord, by being holy and righteous in your conduct, by obeying God's word, okay? A wife's conduct is to be pure, righteous, and good. It should not be wicked or impure or sinful. And there is a perpetual temptation for Christians. When we are in relationships with wicked people to assume that their sinfulness... Their sinfulness justifies our sin. There's a perpetual temptation to that. And Peter addresses this over and over again throughout the passage, uh, throughout this section. But here he's talking to wives and you're going to be tempted to be sinful. But he's sinful. He's inattentive. He works too many hours. He didn't speak nicely to me. He was impatient with me. He was unkind to me. And the temptation, all that's going to be, well, I can do it back. And we all have this, even in good marriages, this is a temptation, much less than one where you're married to a non-Christian man. Peter is saying, wives, your submission to your husband is not modified by his conduct towards you. Can we all like to make excuses for our disobedience to God by someone else's disobedience to God? Kids do this all the time. Why'd you hit your brother in the head with a baseball bat? Well, because he took my toy. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we do this as adults too. Well, he spoke meanly to me, so I'm going to not be nice to him. Okay? We see this sort of tit for tat sort of thing. Again, Peter's not saying, wives, that if your husband asks you to do something sinful, you go along with it. Okay? That's obviously not what he's saying here. All right? Your conduct is to be chaste, to be holy, is to be righteous. If your husband's asking you to do something sinful, then your conduct is not going to be chaste and holy if you obey. Okay? So you need to obey God above your husband. But what he's talking about is this temptation when you have a bad husband to, be, to sin against him. And he's saying, do not do that. It is not justified. Okay? And Peter says this chaste conduct is to be with fear. And the fear here is fear of the Lord. And Peter, fear almost always means fear of God. Earlier in chapter uh, 2, it says, uh, fear, uh, love, I'll read. <laughs> to quote. honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God. Okay? So this woman fears God, therefore she has this honorable, chaste conduct. She obeys the Lord in her in the way she carries herself and what she does. And she doesn't make excuses for her sin because of her husband's sin. She does not do that. So what does this chaste conduct look like? What is Peter talking about specifically in this passage? And here it is, basically verses three and four cover this. Do not let your adornment be mere outward, the arranging of hair, the wearing of gold, or putting on a fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Men and women have different temptations. Okay, they have different temptations. Men want to look. Women want to be looked at. Okay, this is, and this is a good thing, by the way. This is good. This is how babies are made. Okay, this is a good thing. Men want to look. Women want to be looked at. This is how it works. Okay, this is a good thing when it's kept within bounds. Okay, but there are temptations with both of those. We know the temptations 
with men, but with women, there's a temptation that comes with beauty. It's interesting, all the New Testament passages that address, directly address clothing are directly addressed to women, directly addressed to females. Okay? Now, why is that? Is Paul just picking on women? Is Peter just picking on women? No, there is a temptation there with dress. Women were made to be beautiful. Okay, but with that comes a particular temptation. And this is what Peter is addressing here. He's addressing immodesty. And there's obviously two different, there's kind of two different types of immodesty. There's the immodesty we think of typically, where it's provocative dress, dress that's kind of um, a not, not, yeah, it's provocative. It's not clean. You're not covered up enough. That type of dress. But here he's talking more about ostentatious dress. Okay, this more likely there were wealthier women in the congregation who were dressing in a way that set them apart from the rest of the congregation, okay? Set them apart from them and said, we're better than you, we're different than you, okay? It was an immodest way of drawing attention to themselves, right? This is what Peter is addressing here. And then he goes on to say, instead of that, have a gentle and quiet spirit. Have a gentle and quiet spirit. And this, he's not saying, don't be immodest, have a gentle and quiet spirit. He's saying, if you're immodest, you don't have a gentle and quiet spirit. He is connecting the two together. Okay? He is saying that your clothing tells us who you are. All right? Your clothing tells us who you are. Your clothing speaks to us. A rebellious woman who is not in submission to her husband will show that in the way she carries herself. She'll show that in her outward deportment. She'll show that in her speech, obviously, but also in the way she carries herself. Proverbs 7, the immoral woman. It says she has the attire of a harlot. Okay. Well, she's not a harlot. In Proverbs 7, she's a married woman. But she has the attire of a harlot, and her speech is loud and rebellious. Okay. So what we like to do with this is we like to say, oh, I have a gentle and quiet spirit, obviously, when our outward actions say something different. What Peter is saying is you're, how you show yourself with your speech, with your clothing, with your, and I would say clothing here means not just the clothes, but all your outward deportment, how you carry yourself, okay? What that says about you, that will tell us everything we need to know about whether you're in submission to your husband. A rebellious woman is going to look a certain way, okay? It's going to speak a certain way. So it's not just don't be immodest, okay? It's not just uh, have a gentle and quiet spirit. What Peter's saying is there's a connection between the two. There's a connection between it. And he does this also in 1 Peter, uh, sorry, uh, 1 Timothy 2. So listen to this. Peter says in 1 Timothy 2, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man, but to be in silence. So here we see the same connection in, in Timothy that we see in 1 Peter. Clothing, submission, and words. All three of them are there in both these passages. And I don't think that's an accident. I think it's just a coincidence. I think it's the way it goes. The speech and the deportment of a, of a wife demonstrates whether she is in submission to her husband or not. Okay, a couple other notes about this. Modesty, I mean, there's a lot of, we, a lot of discussion about that. It requires a lot of wisdom. But modesty is basically apparel that is inappropriate for the occasion. Okay, remember when I was a pastor, there's a guy who came every Sunday to church in a suit coat 
and uh, slacks and, and a shirt, and he always looked nice everything, every single Sunday. That's how he came to church. Then one Sunday, he comes in in painter's pants, holes in his shirt, covered in dirt, all this, just looking dirty and filthy, and sits in the back row. Now, my church was like 40 people, okay? So it was obvious. He's sitting in the back row back there, all dirty and all that sort of thing. I'm like, what is going on with this guy? What is he doing, okay? Well, afterwards, he's like, well, I'm trying to draw attention to our sinfulness and our poverty of spirit. I'm like, man, the only thing you're drawing attention to is yourself. And that's the only one he's paying attention to because you're weird. You're out of line. You're out of step. It's like wearing your wedding dress to Panera a year later, okay? It just, it didn't fit. It didn't fit. It didn't work. So modest dress is a dress that's appropriate for the occasion. And if you dress inappropriately, you're drawing attention to yourself. That's what's happening, okay? If you just think about the Panera illustration. Imagine you're sitting there, you're getting that coffee from Panera or cinnamon crunch bagel or whatever it is. You're getting it there. And somebody walks in a wedding dress. You're going to be like, what is going on here? This is weird, okay? That's when immodesty is. So we typically think of it like how short, how those sort of things. And that does matter. It's not irrelevant to the discussion, but it's about what dress is appropriate for the occasion. And he's saying if a woman dresses to draw attention to herself, you can be guaranteed she does not have a gentle and quiet spirit. It is a guarantee. That's what Peter's saying here. Those things are connected to one another. The other thing to say about this is Peter is not saying women need to dress ugly, Okay? Here's some Christians, they're like, wow, I wish we, uh, they look out the world and everybody's so immodest and their, their reaction is, let's all dress like Muslims, okay? I'm like, why? Why do you have to go? No, women are made to be beautiful. You should be beautiful. Fathers and mothers should teach their daughters how to dress beautifully, but it needs to be modestly beautiful. Beautiful in a way that is accord with a woman who professes godliness. Not ostentatious, not provocative, but modest and beautiful. That's what God wants from us, okay? So it's not... The scriptures never encourage ugliness. <laughs> never encourage you to dress ugly on purpose or wear ugly clothes or look like an unmade bed. It's not like that, okay? Scriptures encourage you to dress beautiful, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I could argue it's probably the other way. The woman who dresses poorly, there's some other issues going on there, okay? But the point is modesty, dressing modestly, and that sort of thing. And the main point is, I want us to understand, Peter, is you cannot separate the inner heart from the outward picture. You cannot separate that gentle and quiet spirit from what you display, and we all love to do this, not just women, but men as well. We all love to say, we love Jesus in here. My heart's right, but my actions are not, or my way I carry myself isn't. And Peter's saying, no, that is not the case. There is an inner adornment, but that inner adornment is not invisible. Okay? There's inner clothing you wear, the gentle and quiet spirit, but it's not invisible. It will show itself in clear ways, in your dress and your speech in particular. Okay? So Peter tells these women to cultivate a gentle and quiet spirit. What does this mean? It means a godly woman, even when she's married to a pagan man, is not to be argumentative, angry, bitter, harsh with her words, disrespectful, unkind, or malicious. Her actions are not to be vindictive. She's not to undermine her husband, even if he's a pagan. Does this mean she never speaks? No, of course not. Of course she talks, okay? Of course she speaks. But she doesn't. She speaks respectfully, and she speaks kindly. Her most effective message is in her conduct, not in her words, and she understands that. She's faithful in her duties. She's not sour when she doesn't get her way. She doesn't become sullen if he goes a different direction than she wanted her, him to go. She doesn't manipulate, doesn't control. She will not justify sin because she's married to a pagan man. Instead, she will cultivate a gentle and quiet spirit. Jesus himself is called gentle. Gentle is not a distinctly feminine virtue, but in this context, this is something this wife, a wife in this particular type of marriage, needs 
to understand. It needs to understand. A woman in a bad marriage must guard herself against bitterness. She must guard herself against that. And that bitterness will be towards God because he put her there, but it will be demonstrated in her, in her interaction with her husband. That's where it will come out, okay? If you want to think what does a gentle and quiet spirit look like, just think of the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And you might say, well, he's not a nice guy. Yeah, you still, you still got to put on the fruit of the Spirit. You don't get to jettison that because he's not a nice guy. So this character of a gentle and quiet spirit is incorruptible in God's sight. It is precious in God's sight. God loves a woman who has this particular characteristic. Okay? And again, this is a reminder. Peter's hit this in numerous different angles. A reminder that our goal is always to please the Lord. Always that is the aim. Always that is the goal. It is not just you and your husband. It is never just you and your husband. It is always you, your husband, and your God. That is always who's there. And the question is, are you going to please the Lord in what you're doing? Does this honor God? It does honor God. Okay. So he goes on to say, Peter, verses 5 and 6, For in this manner in former times, the holy women who trust in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good, and are not afraid with any terror. Okay. So first thing I want to note about this is time does not change our duties, okay? Some people try to tend to think like, well, this was, what was it, 1400 BC, I guess this next is, so earlier than that, okay? It's, it's like 1600 BC, and that was a long time ago, and so it doesn't matter anymore. Things have changed. Don't you understand how much has changed since that time? Don't you understand how far we've come since Abraham's time? Well, Peter says, I don't care. It's the same. Your duties are the same. Time does not modify our duties. Time does not change. Okay? Yes, we change our dress, we change our cars, we change our houses, but it doesn't change humans, it doesn't change God, it doesn't change sin, and it doesn't change righteousness. What was righteous for Sarah is righteous for you. What was righteous for Abraham is righteous for me, or for the men. Okay? So on and on. So time does not adjust our duties. And Christians have a bad habit of sort of buying into this, like this is kind of antiquated and old. And Peter's like, no, it's not old. Remember Sarah? Remember her? You know, a long time ago? She is your model. Ruth is your model. Abigail is your model. Okay, these are women you're supposed to follow. Mary and Elizabeth, these are the women you're supposed to look like. It doesn't matter how much time has passed. Holiness, holiness is the same in every age and at every time. Then he says, these women trusted in God. These holy women trusted in God. You're, there's kind of two pillars in this passage for the godly wife, two pillars her trust in the Lord and her fear of the Lord. Her trust in the Lord and fear of the Lord. And these are the things that hold her up and strengthen her. She's not trusting in herself. She's not trusting in her husband. She's trusting in the Lord. Okay? But her trust in the Lord will be demonstrated in her relationship to her husband. She cannot say, a wife cannot say, I trust God, but I am not going to submit to my husband. I am not going to obey him. I'm not going to do that. She cannot say it. Just as a husband cannot say, I love Jesus, but I'm going to treat my wife like dirt. It doesn't go that way. We all know that's a lie. That's a lie. Okay? So our love for God, John makes this clear in 1 John, our love for God is demonstrated in how we treat other people. Okay? Not in our words, but in how we treat other people. And a wife who trusts in the Lord will behave a certain way. And that, the way she behaves will be clearly demonstrated in the way she treats her husband. This is action and attitude here, not just 
Um, not just outward action, but attitude as well. It's interesting, Peter kind of like hammers this point more than Ephesians 5. If you read Ephesians 5, we tend to think about Ephesians 5 being a strong passage in this, but Peter kind of hammers it more. He uses submissive, he uses obedience at the beginning of chapter 6, and he also uses the word calling him Lord in chapter 6 as well. I think the reason is because he's talking to women who are married to non-Christian husbands. And so the temptation there is to kind of, it's kind of, flatten this out, make this not say what it means. So Peter kind of piles up the words, submission, obedience, calling him Lord. All three of those are there. And for wives, I think a lot of them, well, I don't know, but it, there's a temptation to be like a child where you draw a line and the child gets, you know, you, have, you all have this kid, maybe we have several of them, and you draw, don't go here, don't do this. And the child gets as absolutely close as they possibly can to crossing that line. You know, it's close, close, close. Well, why sometimes with submission, this is the way the approach is. Well, how much can I get away with and not be accused of being unsubmissive? How much can I get away with? Okay. And that's not, that should not be the approach. Full throttled, pedal to the floor, obedience and submission. Cheerful, glad-hearted submission. Action and attitude together. We tell our kids, I tell my kids, run towards obedience. Run towards it. Well, why is that? Run towards obedience. What does that look like in your life? Are you kind of like, well, sort of kind of submitting? Run towards obedience. Run towards it, all right? And then Peter ends with this calling him Lord, okay, which we're all like, whoa, what is going on here? This is very odd, okay? And I don't think Peter's saying we need to go around calling, wives need to go around calling their husbands Lord, but it would be funny, wouldn't it? If like for a whole week, we all, everywhere we went, all the ladies just referred to their husbands as my Lord, what kind of coffee would you like? Well, my Lord, I would like a, my Lord. And just see where the reaction from the different people, the places you go, just refer to him as my Lord. That would have been funny. No, I don't think Peter's saying you have to say these words. But what he is saying is there has to be visible signs of respect for your husband. Visible, outward signs of respect. It cannot just be, yes, I respect him in here. There has to be something out there. The way you talk to him, the way you treat him, the way you, all those sort of things, it has to be visible. If, no, if people cannot tell that you respect your husband, then something's off. If they cannot tell that you're obedient to your husband, then something's off. It should be visible, all right? And I think we all have a temptation in the Christian life to assume that what's going on in our hearts is enough or what we think is going on in our hearts, and we don't have to demonstrate it, okay? Well, you need to demonstrate it, ladies. You, need to you would never want your husband just to say, well, I love you in my heart, dear, but I'm going to go over and do this thing. You want your husband to demonstrate his love for you in concrete ways. So what I'm saying, ladies, is demonstrate your obedience and respect to your husband in concrete ways. Okay, so the kids see it, the people around you see it, and it's obvious. It's obvious. Okay, so there's a few applications here for this. First, the husbands, which is odd. We'll get to husbands in January. We're going to take a break in December. Get to husband, verse 7 in January. But first, the husbands, make it easy. Make it easy. Okay, I mean, this, this, Peter here is talking to a wife who's in a very difficult, hard situation. He's encouraging her, he's encouraging her to, to strengthen herself in the Lord. You can make following you easy. You can make respecting you easy, or you can make it hard, okay? We pray, do not lead us into temptation. Well, some husbands lead their wives into temptation with their, dis, with their bad attitudes, with their poor leadership, with their disrespect of her, with their failure to be attentive to her needs, so make sure as husbands you're not making this hard for them. Make it easy. A good, a good man, women like to follow, generally. They like to follow a good man. And so make yourself that way. Fathers, your daughters need to be taught this. Okay? They're not going to pick this up osmosis magically from somewhere. Our world is very much against this. 
Our world hates this. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen people get as mad at men, at pastors, as when they preach on this sort of thing or teach on this sort of thing. It's insane, the fear you have of this. So you have to teach your daughters this. The world's picture of femininity is a false one. It's a lie. It's not, it's not like Peter's being mean here. Peter is telling you this is the way to honor the Lord. This is the way to be beautiful. This is the way to be glorious. And we need to teach our daughters this. And mothers, you need to exemplify this for your daughters. They need someone to imitate, someone to look at. How you treat your husband is going to help them in treating their husband as husbands as they get older. Okay? Young ladies, young ladies of married age are getting close to there. A couple of things there. A gentle and quiet spirit does not show up as a gift on your wedding day. It's not how it works. You have to be cultivating a gentle and quiet spirit all throughout your life, okay? In submission to your parents, in submission to your elders, kindness to your siblings. That gentle and quiet spirit is something you cultivate. It is precious in the sight of God, okay? Something you need to to build on. You can't just hope it shows up when you find the right man, okay? You can't hope that, all right? On that topic, make sure you marry a good man, okay? You don't want to be in a hard marriage. You don't want to be in a difficult marriage, you women are in a position of power when it comes to who they marry, okay? We don't do arranged marriages. <laughs> we don't do that. There's a push online for arranged marriages. That's a lot. But anyway, um, <laughs> the women are in a lot of position of power, and they should be. They should be in a position of power. And the reason is because they're going to have to submit to this guy. They're going to have to follow this guy. Okay? So ladies, young ladies of married age, be careful. Don't be too picky, but be careful about who you come underneath, okay? Because that's a lifelong commitment to following this fellow. And make sure he's a good Man, okay? Married ladies, obviously this is mainly for you guys. This is where this passage is mainly intended. If this is Peter's exhortation to women in hard marriages, women married to non-Christian men, how much more should ladies who are married to Christian men cheerfully, gladly, willingly submit, okay? I don't know all the husbands in here. I know a lot of you guys, though. And I know most of the men at Christ Church are trying to do well but for their families. They're trying to lead them in righteousness. Again, if Peter says, listen, submit, obey, call him Lord, do all of this, if he's not a Christian, then if you're in a good marriage, I mean, be so supportive, be so respectful, so kind, be all of that. Okay, that, is, that is what God is calling you to. And I think sometimes women in good marriages can make more excuses than sometimes women in bad marriages are do. Okay, don't make excuses. Follow your husband Full throttle. That's, that's the word I had in my mind. Follow them full throttle, okay? And the last thing I'll say is as I prepared this sermon, I was filled with gratitude for the women in this congregation. There are so many bad pictures of femininity out there. And in here, there are so many godly women, so many women who display this gentle and quiet spirit. And my point to you is, one, you're doing a good job. Keep doing it. But two, this is how you change the world. You might think, what am what am I doing here? I mean, I got this friend of mine who's, who's in this big company and they're doing all this cool stuff. I got this person over here doing this. How, this is how you change things. This, by loving, by respecting, by honoring your husband. This is how you are a daughter of Sarah. This is how you occupy the promised land. Okay, this is how it happens. Not the way the world says, but the way Peter says. So my encouragement to you ladies is if you want to see things change, Peter's saying if you want to see things change in your marriage, lady, here's what you need to do. If you want to see things change, in your home, if we want to see things change in our culture, one of the keys is women who look like this, women who are daughters of Sarah. Let's pray together. 
Father in heaven, we're so grateful and thankful for your word. We're grateful for the hard words, for the difficult words, for the good words. We ask that you would give us strength and grace to do these things. I pray that we as a church would be uh, just a wonderful model of biblical femininity. And we thank you. I thank you for the work you've done in that area already. I pray that you would increase and do that. I especially pray for our daughters, Lord, so many young ladies. Keep them from being led astray by false teaching and help us as fathers and mothers to protect them from the false views of women that are out in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.